This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We begin today's program with Alan Minsky, Executive Director of the Progressive Democrats of America, on the historic infrastructure bill about to come up for a vote. This is a $3.5 trillion infrastructure package, and it represents a momentous change in our polity, allowing Congress to reclaim its power to address the social ills in the country through classical welfareist social democratic policy. And as Alan says, that's why this fight is so momentous and consequential. We then turn to the 10th anniversary of Occupy and talk to Arun Gupta, who traveled the country visiting and writing about the many Occupy sites and the politics that emerged about how Occupy shaped a decade of dramatic protest, looking at its legacy, significance, and relevance for today. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we're going to start the show today with the most important piece of legislation under consideration and its fate. And Alan Minsky is joining us to discuss this. This is the Biden infrastructure bill. And what makes this bill and this moment historic? As you all know, COVID has changed everything. And though we've had the COVID relief or the CARES Act passed, Biden's infrastructure bill is different because it creates a permanent and progressive public policy. You could say that COVID provided the opportunity for Congress to finally and for the first time since the 60s and 70s to reclaim its power to address the social ills of the United States through classical social democratic welfareist policies. And that's what makes this fight to get this $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill passed so momentous and so consequential. And Alan Minsky, who is executive director of the PDA and is heavily involved in the politicking to get this bill passed, is going to join us to give us the story and its significance. So, Alan, welcome back to the show. Thank you. And um, I do want to say that for even an organization like Progressive Democrats of America, which is very focused upon the details of the reconciliation bill, I would actually say that as huge as this is, and I'm going to make a case that this is an incredibly historically significant moment, I would say that there's actually another bill of almost equal importance, but I see them as a pair, and that is going to be on the floor for a vote on Tuesday in the Senate, which is the Voting Rights Act, a compromise version that Joe Manchin has blessed, that will go to a vote. It will fail, in my opinion. It will not get the 60 votes needed to pass, at which moment it will immediately move to the question is, is the Democratic Party willing to create a carve out on the filibuster, uh, maybe say matters related to democracy only, in order to pass these? Why do I see this as incredibly wedded to the infrastructure bill? It's because taken broadly, they combined represent a moment where the Democratic Party starts to shift. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want everybody out there to start cataloging in their minds all of the failures of the Democratic Party recently and through up into the present. But they represent a shift from what we have seen from Democrats recently. Don't forget, when it comes to voting rights in 2000, they had presidential elections stolen from them, and they did nothing to combat what was obviously clear as day an effort by the Republican Party to restrict voting rights, etc. Now they're going to try to change, and they're changing at a moment. They're changing their relationship to voting rights. They're going to insist on a fair playing field against the Republicans. 
We're going to see if they pass it by changing the filibuster. That's a huge thing. And it goes hand in hand with the reconciliation bill, because this is a moment when the Democratic Party is actually shifting such that it is acknowledging the endemic inequalities in American society due to the structures of our really existing capitalist economy, and that they will address them through fiscal policy. I got to ask you one question right in there before you go anywhere else, Alan, on that, because you said on Tuesday that they're going to vote on the Voting Rights Act and you said it's going to fail. So are you saying that they need to make the carve out from the filibuster before Tuesday? That is Monday. Tuesday, Tuesday, the vote will fail and then they have to return to the bill. But first, they have to create a carve out in the filibuster so that it can pass with only 50 votes. And can that pass to to getting the carve out? Given that Manchin has endorsed the bill, I cannot believe that Chuck Schumer is so naive to have been proceeding down this path without having Manchin agreeing to this necessary second step. He's given Manchin until Tuesday the opportunity to get 10 votes of Republicans to vote for it. They are, of course, not going to vote for it. And so then I think he must have Manchin agreeing to do that. The big question then becomes Kristen Sinema. In Arizona, will she agree to the carve-out? Now, even before that, on Monday is, of course, the huge day in the House. It's the day that Pelosi has promised a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. That is a, a sometimes you see it listed as a trillion dollars. More often, is about six hundred billion dollars. It is far too small for the necessities of American society. This is a portion of the Build Back Better two halves, which really the much smaller half, is all about classical brick and mortar infrastructure. So this covers, you know, roads, unfortunately airports still, railway, so not enough on rail, and water, sewage, that kind of infrastructure, spending. Of course, still it's a significant employment package. That's not a small bill. It's not as large anywhere near as it needs to be. And this half was shrunk down and it got bipartisan support largely because it was shrunk down, has far too many private public components, and it doesn't do enough to combat the climate. So it will get a vote. Promised on Monday. Pelosi is still scrambling. Today, as we speak, the Budget Committee is trying to pass through its body the entirety of the bill that was written by the committees for the $3.5 trillion package. And Pelosi's at least hoping to have it whipped through the Rules Committee and get somehow introduced as well tomorrow. Now, that, that all seems unlikely still, but possible. It is rather interesting for, obviously, we're now the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, very much in coordination and support of Pelosi's moves on this. It is sort of amazing to see how agile a parliamentarian she is and a legislator. And it's possible, but it's a long shot. So if it's not ready for a simultaneous vote, will the bipartisan package pass? And that becomes a question as to whether the progressive caucus has enough votes to vote it down more than Republicans who would come on to support it. And that is the drama for Monday, right? There's so much dimension to this, but that's basically the scorecard for Monday. I gave you the scorecard for Tuesday in the Senate. Obviously, Monday comes before Tuesday. Now, <laughs> I think we should go back and talk about, just for a second, Alan, I know you've got another point you're going to make, but for the listeners, you know, we know that they've been discussing this in terms of hard or physical infrastructure versus social human infrastructure. And all of it, of course, is intimately tied to a concrete plan for jobs and growth that addresses the climate emergency. And in my view, they're all tied together, but clearly various interests want to separate them out. So could you just super quickly go over those aspects 
And then I want to talk about like the politicking that you're already into. Okay. Well, I do want to, you mentioned the climate. Another issue that people might have heard about that people might feel has already been undercut from the 3.5 trillion is the question of Medicare's ability to negotiate drug prices. Mm -hmm. As popular an issue in the general public is almost anything that's spoken about in American politics. It's a, a public approval rating across all parties, sometimes rises as high as 90, almost never below 80. <laughs> and yet the pharmaceutical lobby got its teeth into it. Okay, a big issue for Monday is will the full balance of that be on the complete bill when it comes to the House of the floor, whenever it does come to the House of the floor? As it passes through budget, passes through rules. Why? Because one committee voted it down, but the House Ways and Means is now proposing the full version And we want the Ways and Means version to get in there so that at least half a billion dollars can be saved over the next 10 years and even more money saved by American consumers as Medicare is allowed to negotiate drug prices, which would end the regime by which Americans pay two and a half times more than any other country in the world for the same drugs. That's an unbelievable position for any politician to support. But as we see, three Democrats continue to support it in the Energy and Commerce Committee because Let's face it, they're complete lapdogs to the pharmaceutical industry, which is, by the way, supported by our tax money for the research that gets done for new drugs. So that's a ridiculous setup, and we all know the corruption, et cetera. Okay, to your question about what is in the reconciliation bill. I explained roughly what's in the bipartisan bill. The reconciliation bill, $3.5 trillion. Obviously, it includes the half a billion dollars of savings, so it would only be $3 billion if it's not included goes towards the Medicare drug negotiations. The rest of the $3 billion that's raised in revenue comes from a little bit from the repeal of other subsidies, including the repeal of at least some significant subsidies to the fossil fuel industries. We're hoping for more still to get into it. Then the rest is through raising tax revenue. And then again, the some of it, the Congressional Budget Office sees that this will expand the economy, therefore generate more taxes. And that, of course, goes for some of the pay for but the taxes that are raised, which I think is still the balance of the $3.5 trillion, are progressive taxes. That's also not insignificant. It reverses at about an 80% clip the Trump tax cuts for corporations, not going fully back to where Obama had it. So as you can see, it's not that progressive, but just better than where Trump left it. Yeah. And then it raises taxes on Americans above who make more than $400,000 a year. As we all remember, that so much of the Trump tax cuts for personal households went to that group, those are getting, for the most part, reversed. So again, progressive taxation, another good thing about this. Now, that's the revenue side. What's the expenditure side? Well, a big portion of it is the largest expansion of what would classically be called welfare state proposals, right? So social democratic proposals in American politics since at least the 1970s and probably since the Johnson administration. And these include Famously, the continuation of the tax child credits, which again are per child, either $3,000 or $3,600 per year per child, depending on the age of the child. So if you have three kids, you could be getting more than $10,000. So the continuation of that. A huge amount of money laid out for universal pre-K and child care, okay? As well as the strengthening of labor rights around taking medical leaves and family leaves. So those are classical welfare state programs, the expansion of which we haven't seen in the United States. Now, there are a whole bunch of other things. They are probably 
the largest set of ticket items other than that are the first expansion of actual Medicare since the 1970s by expanding it to include hearing, vision, and dental. Now, don't get me wrong. Those are not structured the way that PDA would like. We would want them to be free at the point of service. We, of course, want to see Medicare for all adopted, but they are included. So it's the first time since the 70s that a huge set of health issues are now included and folded in for the general population of Medicare beneficiaries. And that's a big ticket item. Then another huge aspect are a set of tax incentives around the climate crisis. And the healthiest ones are, and this is good, for pure renewable energy systems. So solar, wind, things that have zero carbon emissions. What is still unfortunate is they do extend to some fossil fuel-related energy production, largely drawn off of gas, so not coal or oil, to incentivize the development of cleaner energies. Again, unfortunately, not zero carbon. Okay, so that's all in the reconciliation bill. It's huge. Now, to me, the biggest question historically, and this is a debate, the biggest question is just getting it passed. Mm. Is it going to get passed at $3.5 trillion or much less? We know in the Senate that Cinema and Mansion are going to try to get it to be less. In the House, there are people who are committed to it. We'll see very quickly in the next week if they're able to shrink it down. That may happen. And I think all progressives should support the full $3.5 trillion that's on the table. Bernie Sanders, of course, notes it was already a compromise. Right. There are a set of House people, but they tend to be a little bit fragmented. Some of them oppose the Medicare drug eligibility issue. Some of them oppose the repeal of any fossil fuel subsidies, and there are about 10 who oppose just the fact of it. And the question is, are they going to be willing to block the agenda, not just of Nancy Pelosi, but of a sitting Democratic president who clearly does want this to be as large as possible? And then we get to the Senate, we see what happens with Manchin and Cinema, but first is the House and how it gets through the House. Now, let's go to that question of why it is that all of a sudden, we have Biden, Pelosi, and Schumer supporting measures that run counter to anything we've seen from the Democratic Party since the 1970s. And what does that mean historically? And what does that mean? Because this kind of fiscal spending is one of the major things that dropped away when we moved from the post-World War II economic political order, the Keynesian era, into the era after Ronald Reagan of neoliberalism that was, of course, extended and embraced by the supposedly more left Democratic Party, much as UK labor embraced it with Blair and Clinton. And this included no new fiscal spending. Actually, that regime was even stricter in the US than it was in in the UK. Mm. So how much does it represent a break with neoliberalism? Because all of a sudden we have the US Congress re-embracing, not in an emergency way as happened in a too small a package with Obama in 2009 after the market crash, or with the CARES Act and the Relief Act, which, by the way, were more substantial than the Obama era. And there's no doubt, as you said in the opening, COVID informs that this is happening now. But nonetheless, these are not temporary measures. These are the establishment of government programs on the order of what we haven't seen. So one of the big questions and big questions on the left being debated, and it's partly a parlor game, but it's more. And I would say it has political significance. How much of a break with neoliberalism does this represent? And I actually saw a very good interview with a friend of the show, Jack Rasmus, on a podcast called This is Revolution. He said, no, it doesn't. Well, I disagree while also agreeing with Jack Rasmus, because what it is, is it's a first step. It's a break. But a break, is it continued or is it a one-off? That's a big question. I think already the fact of a break represents something so significant 
because we have the contemporary Democratic Party largely embracing the logic of the Sanders campaign, the logic of the critique from the squad, that currently real life existing capitalism is a raw deal for the American public. And that the U.S. Congress is taking it upon itself, is taking back its power to directly address this through fiscal spending. Now, in neoliberalism, you can argue what it is. In the broadest sense of the term, it is the reallocation of money upwards to the rich and the restructuring of the global economic system to that effect and the weakening of the left. Okay, And the privatization so, of the public. But if you then start breaking it down more small to, to, to its component parts, particularly around the central countries in the world over the last four decades, and the, and the country that set the template going forward of neoliberalism, which is the United States, you have the components that basically are the elimination of using fiscal policy to address these things. So that's being right. But up against it, you have the use of monetary policy as the central economic tool of the central government. And it works, of course, to facilitate the reallocation of money upwards to the wealthy. The financialization of everything. So deindustrialization on the one hand, financialization of everything on the other. Those are sort of, I've gotten through two of the components. I would say the weakening of labor and unions across the board. And fourth, the global trade regime. So as you can see, I just gave four big components, and it's only half of one of them. So if you change just the fiscal policy, how much impact does it have on the rest? I would argue if you continue with this, and it has the positive effects that we believe it would, and roughly even neoliberal economic orthodoxy says that it would, that if you have fiscal spending, it's going to have a wave of impacts. How much of all of those other things does it impact? Potentially all of them but potential. It's a baby step. It's a first step. The question is, is can we now take this and say that this is what the Democratic Party is about and must be about going forward? Well, I want to just come in there, Alan, and thank you for that incredible overview, because it really does answer aspects of every question that I thought I was going to bring up today. And as you said, this is a watershed bill, and there's no question about this. And it's also a bill that will make or break the Biden presidency. And that's critically important because it also means addressing the Democratic Party as it exists today. And you mentioned that this and that group of Democrats who are trying to scuttle it or pare it down. And so the obvious question is, why are they opposed to a measure that will create jobs and growth? What political corporate forces are at play trying to stop this from being passed? And what talking points do they actually come out with the very uh, next day after they get their money from the donors, as in cinema and pharma? And then that means, what are the chances in your view? And I really hate asking this question. Do you think that the bill will be destroyed or passed? I think it's something we're just going to have to watch very closely. There is a possibility of it getting through in the complete form. It is really threading a needle. It's a manner of keeping these two bills, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So right off the bat on Monday, if if they succeed in moving the bipartisan bill and not having the reconciliation bill ready to move, that's the loss is happening. Then also, if we see in the House, it gets pared down. Okay, look, the size matters in this regard. (laughs) It's terrible if we lose a half billion dollars because everything in this thing is essential. Now, there are very few things that I would like to see carved out, some things that subsidize, you know, bad, nefarious aspects of society. Of course, I wish the bipartisan bill altogether was better. But anyway, where it is with the $3.5 trillion as it is, if it gets pared down a lot, cut down a lot, you know, that's a significant loss. But I don't want to see it cut down at all. And 
yes, there is a way that they can sort of maneuver it through. And let's not also have any illusions. The most significant weapon that Pelosi and Schumer have as they try to guide it through in its full form is backup from the White House. Mm. The and they have that. Scott Peters in San Diego. Yeah. Laptog to the pharmaceutical industry or Stephanie Murphy down in central Florida or um, whoever is going to try to scuttle this or cinema in Arizona. Are they going to do this against the wishes of a first term Democratic president? How much weight is Biden going to put behind this? And we hope he does. This opens up all sorts of questions as to why this political formation is doing this. I don't don't get me wrong. I think markets are responding to this in a way that they don't see it as a constant. They probably see it as a one off. They think it's going to boost the economy. They're not running away from it. They're not condemning it. And that goes along probably with why Schumer, Pelosi, and Biden are. But from our perspective, people who want to see a transformation in the economic system that we're living in to a much more equitable and fair system, this is a move forward. It's a move forward in harmony with the Sanders movement. It's a move forward in harmony with the critiques of society made under Occupy. Well, that was my last question, Alan. How much is this a kind of legacy of, of the you know, response to the soaring inequalities that we saw, right? And that Occupy brought to the forefront and allowed for, you know, the candidacy of Bernie Sanders, which really, you know, we wouldn't have seen Otherwise, and so I wanted to find ask if this bill is the fact that it's even gotten as close as it has, and hopefully it'll go over. And how much that major shift talks about what Occupy did to change the conversation in the country. Here's the key thing: I made the point, sort of folded in the middle of this, creating a fire in the belly of the legislators in Congress that they can act to address these core issues that are corroding American society. So yes, at the core of this, it is a response to the explosion of opposition that Occupy represented 10 years ago, that the Sanders movement shocked the world with five years ago, because it is then the increasing awareness among even American elites. And by the way, let's not lie to ourselves. This is somewhat reflected in Trump's rhetoric that propels him to the presidency in 2016, that what has gone on here has gone too far. It's way too unequal. And it's a rotten system and it needs to be addressed. And this is the American political class at the core of the global economic society, realizing there's a crisis of democracy here and that something has to be given to the people. We have to take advantage of this moment as people who want much more than just that in social transformation and build off of it and transform one of the two major political parties. First, a really serious social democratic party working on behalf of the people. And there's a lot of steps we have to take before we really get to we want to see money out of politics. So many things have to change. We have the right wing courts to contend with, et cetera. But it is a first step. It represents a break with the logic of neoliberalism. Let's not have it be just a one off, but let's first win this one, too. I really encourage everybody out there to call their Congress people, call their senators, demand that they support the full bill, demand that there's no fossil fuel subsidies in it. Medicare drug prices are being negotiated in every component. Let's make sure the immigration stays in. And yes, by the way, labor is in here too. Right now, the parliamentarian hasn't ruled on the PRO Act components. So they are still in the bill. And those are significant. It's not the full PRO Act, but a significant portion of it. So as you can see in those four aspects of society, yes, of course, you can play out the scenarios if everything goes well, how they impact monetary policy, the financialization of everything, the weakening of labor, international trade relations. They all could be impacted if the U.S. Congress starts to take control by using fiscal policy to reorganize the way that the American economy impacts the society and does things like have more union jobs through these kind of bills, et cetera. Thank you, Susie Weissman, as always. 
Alan Minsky, thank you so much for that. I have to say from your mouth to whosoever ears make it happen. That's what we want. And we're going to have you back to discuss what happens once it does happen. And we'll all hope for the best. Alan is a longtime political essayist and journalist. He is a producer for this broadcast, and he is the executive director for the Progressive Democrats of America. Thank you so much. And do as Alan says, call every representative you can imagine and say, pass the full bill. I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. We're going to come back and commemorate Occupy 10 years later. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're going to begin a conversation right now on the 10th anniversary of Occupy, Occupy at 10. Occupy started in September of 2011 in New York City, but the LA Occupy, which grew to be the largest, began on October 1st and Oakland was on October 10th. And there has been a lot of writing and talking about that anniversary and what it's meant and what Occupy morphed into. So we're going to join that conversation. And I'm really pleased to have Arun Gupta with us. Just like to start by saying, you know, if you think about what was going on 10 years ago, and I know you're going to bring in more that, you know, we had the beginnings in Athens with the nihilists, or, you know, we're canceling Christmas and New Year and protesting police brutality and then quickly moving into general strikes against austerity imposed by the Troika, you know, trying to kill Greece, essentially. And that moved from Greece to Egypt and Tamir Square, and then the Indignados. And then, of course, Occupy. And right before that, we had Wisconsin, which was the U.S. fight against the continued offensive against labor. And then it went to Ferguson and Bernie and DSA and Black Lives Matter and more. And so we just had Alan Minsky on to talk about this giant package that is trying to be negotiated this week, which will change the conversation yet again on the role of government in creating social infrastructure for the population and finally addressing the social ills in at least some way in the United States. Occupy really was in the background of the ability for us to have this conversation today, that it brought the issues of inequality, wealth distribution, and even democratic socialism to the forefront. Now, Arun Gupta traveled the length and breadth of Occupy. He started on a, I think it was called Occupy USA tour. And from independent to the occupied Wall Street Journal, Arun Gupta has been there for most of it. And in his latest piece in, in these times, he looks at how Occupy shaped a decade of dramatic protests. And its title is very provocative. It says, Occupy Wall Street Trained a Generation in Class War. Arun founded The Independent. It chronicled Occupy and Occupy Wall Street Journal. And from 2011 to 2013, Arun traveled the country and wrote about Occupy from many of the sites and its politics. And he's also an investigative journalist, and his work appears everywhere in the Progressive, Jacobin, In These Times Nation, Intercept, Guardian, and elsewhere. Another aspect that we've talked about on this show with Arun is that he's a graduate of the French Culinary Institute and is looking at the social construction of taste in the United States and writing a book that just, you know, the more you tell me about what this book is going to have, I know we're going to spend at least one show, if not two, on it when it comes out, Arun. So I want to thank you and, and welcome you to the show. 
Arun, let's, we can start with the present or go to the past, but really you said that Occupy Wall Street trained a generation. And I just finished speaking with Alan Minsky and we ended with this bill and these ideas, the first maybe baby step and maybe larger step break with neoliberalism to a more classical welfareist, social democratic kind of polity wouldn't have been possible without Occupy. So pick it up from there. Yeah, let's let's go back to 2011. Back then, before Occupy began on September 17, 2011, just a couple of blocks from the New York Stock Exchange, the dominant narrative was economic austerity being pushed by the Tea Party. And President Obama was very much down with this. He came into office. There's this infamous interview I always refer everyone to days before he was inaugurated, where he sat down with the Washington Post, traditionally new presidents do, and he said, we're going to reform entitlements. And that is just code word for cutting Social Security and Medicare. And what that is really about is cutting these bedrock programs, uh, retirement, pension and and healthcare because old people are seen as largely useless to capitalism. So a way to encourage them to die quicker or to create the condition. So this was the narrative going into Occupy Wall Street. Additionally, we still had kind of the Clintonian ideology of neoliberalism, in, in other words, of the rule of the market over everything else and the subjugation of labor. This gave us NAFTA welfare reform, th- throwing two million women and children off the welfare rolls, the Commodities Future Modernization Act, the repeal of a uh, Glass-Steagall, on and on and on and on. Clinton fulfilled the Reagan revolution of neoliberalism, and Obama was just carrying it on to the next state. Occupy came in and just completely flipped the script. And this is no small thing, because to this day, 10 years later, more than 10 years after Occupy began, the dominant issue in terms of economics is economic inequality, and now even more important, in income inequality, the wealth inequality. And so we are seeing, and I think historic but baby steps, is this $3.5 trillion bill that Biden and the Democrats are say they're going to pass. You know, of course, this is already down from $6 trillion, and we have to remember this is over a decade, so it's nowhere as big as it looks. It's maybe only about 1% in new spending GDP per year. But still, that 1% is significant because it does represent somewhat of a wealth transfer from the ruling class. Again, not exactly how we would want to see it, but it is opening up the door. And once you open up the door, you start to be able to push more and more through. And Occupy gave us this. The other thing, when I say Occupy trained a generation in class war, that in these Times article... It gave us a new vernacular for class, 99% and 1%. Everyone understands that, again, to this day. And this is no small thing. And people want to dismiss, oh, these are just ideas. No, these are ways of looking at the world. And you cannot change the social system without changing how people look at the world. And I hear union organizers will tell me, just offhandedly, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, my workers, you know, they said something about the 99% or 1%. I've heard Walmart cashiers, because I like to go into Walmart because I'm fascinated by it. I've written uh, extensively on Walmart. And I've heard them use the term 1% before. 
everyone gets it. We don't need to be talking about surplus labor value or, or base superstructure or, you know, commodity fetishism. They get and the 90, dialectic even. <laughs> and, and the dialectic. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis, you know. I think so, you're right. I want to just interrupt one thing because at the height of the Occupy movement here in L.A., I had to stop by at a mall and I wandered through Macy's where when you first walk in, pre-COVID when these things existed, there's a giant makeup area where they have every kind of cosmetics. And there were three of the women working there and they were talking about whether or not they were going to go down to Occupy because they were so much oppressed as part of the 99%. I went, oh my God, this is incredible. Yeah. And, you know, we really need to appreciate how just important that is. And now where we've come, where it's taken for granted. Now, of course, you have billionaires in their phallic spacefaring contest, mega billionaires, but they're roundly ridiculed. Even you see this in the mainstream media. They're spending all this money to go to the edge of space. And meanwhile, the, the planet is in utter peril because of a capitalist caused climate catastrophe. So changing the conversation is no small thing. It's not everything, right? But we do see impacts. There would have been no Bernie Sanders campaign without Occupy Wall Street. He built it on the terms 99% and 1%. And we have to remember that he began his campaign as a protest campaign. His staff later admitted it in 2016 that they really thought it was just going to be a protest campaign. And they were taken by surprise that they could have won it all. Of course, you know, then in 2020, you have the establishment via Obama come in and sabotage his campaign when he's taking off. But nonetheless, this is what the ruling class is going to do. And to expect them to do otherwise wouldn't make them a very efficient ruling class. They're the ruling class for a reason. You could also say, if I could just interject, you know, we had the fight for 15 and now $15 is considered a floor, not, you know, not a ceiling. And we're we're seeing here in California the bill, first we had this AB bill to make the gig workers employees, and then the yeah. app businesses responded with Prop 22 and with their literally hundreds of millions in advertising one, but now there's a kickback against that. And so what we're seeing is that the failure to address poverty and inequality in the United States is sparking class politics. Yeah, it very much is. So out of we have the fight for 15, you know, there's a lot of movements. Every movement in this past decade, Occupy has shaped or it came out of Occupy directly. Fight for 15 was heavily influenced for Occupy. SCIU was actually trying to model it to look like an Occupy style upsurge. And they hired lots of field organizers who were Occupy Wall Street activists. Occupy Wall Street one should never say that it created Black Lives Matter. But I talked to Black Lives Matter activists who were like, look, you know, it's just like those conversations that were going on at Zuccotti Park and about these difficult conversations about economic and racial justice. This laid the seed. And more practically, Occupy brought us back into the streets. Because we have to remember, Occupy happened literally days after the 10th anniversary of 9-11. It happened in the shadow of the World Trade Center, like you could see where they had been. And on the other side was the New York Stock Exchange, a block or two away. But most important, Occupy resurrected the movement that had been killed by 9-11. The government police forces used the war on terror 
to really squash the global justice movement that had been born in Seattle in 1999 with the World Trade Organization Ministerial, where we had seen this type of confrontational, nonviolent direct action, mass direct action in the street. And the state was able to use 9-11 to crush it. Occupy gave it back. And that has certainly played a role in, you know, what we see with these mass peaceful protests. And they are overwhelmingly peaceful that have come out of the Black Lives Matter movement that we saw in the summer of 20 with the George Floyd movement. The vast majority of violence is coming from the police and, you know, even the use of the military by Trump. We also have things like Standing Rock, Occupy Ice. So all sorts of effects coming out of Occupy. I wanted to just ask one other question because it reminded me at the time of Seattle in 1999, we saw an internationalism and what we now, I guess, would call an intersectionalism where you had turtles and teamsters together and they were protesting the World Trade Organization. And while it was in Kuwait in many, many ways, it was the beginning step. And you even had that book on Empire was asking whether or not the national state was dead now that capitalism was international. 9-11 put a stop to all of that. And I wondered if you thought that maybe 9-11, war on terror, and everything that happened thereafter had some impact on the concentration back on nationalism and gave birth to some of the far-right populisms as well. It's a leap, but I just wondered what you thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly I think the war on terror has played into that. I don't think there would have been a Donald Trump without the war on terror and just that vicious animosity and hatred and white nationalism, the, you know, Islamophobia, anti-Arab. And we saw that spill over to immigrants in general with the Republican Party. So it definitely created that. And and if there is, I think, a weakness, one of the weaknesses in movements today is it doesn't have the internationalism that I think used to be much more commonplace on the left, like coming out of the 60s and 70s, things like the Central America Solidarity Movement, the South African Anti-Apartheid Movement, the Zapatistas, all these various solidarity struggles. There's still some solidarity struggles going on today. But there has definitely been a turning inward, I think, across the board politically. And, you know, I mean, hey, Mark said workers of the world unite. It wasn't uh, workers of the United States unite. There is an international proletarian and working class, clearly. And there is an international capitalist class. There are various sectors and sections of both, but there's two classes whose interests are completely opposed to each other. One thing I think you could say, because now we're in a new moment with COVID, but what we saw before it got interrupted with COVID was in 2019, worldwide protests of the most massive demonstrations we could imagine, even in places where the economy had not been as affected as in other places, but it was worldwide. And it was also very much about inequality and austerity. People wanted an end to austerity and the ability to live decent lives. Climate is right up there in it as well because of the impact that people are feeling everywhere. I wanted to just bring in one point about that in Los Angeles, because at City Hall, they were literally a half a block away from where most of the homeless had been gathering in Los Angeles. And people right away recognized that they were perhaps one paycheck or two paychecks away from joining them. And so rather than creating hostility, there was a camaraderie that developed and it became very much an issue. And I wanted to maybe ask Arun to go there because it seems like two of the big lasting issues that come out of it 
apart from economic inequality, is the issue of debt, homelessness, eviction, and of course the healthcare issues that arise out of that. And they're very much front and center today. Yeah, I think so. When we visited Occupy Detroit, the occupation there in the main park, I think it was something like Grand Circus Park, I think is what it was called. There were just hundreds of people milling around. And I looked it up. And at that point, the real unemployment rate in Detroit, a majority African-American city, the real unemployment rate was like 44%. I mean, it was just utterly shocking. And I talked to an auto worker who was a wobbly, an older guy. And he's like, I don't call them homeless. I call them forgotten workers. Mm-hmm. And and we talked to some and there were auto workers there who had been just kicked to the curb by society, by the corporations, just trying to get by day to day. And by the end of all this traveling we did, I said, like, look, there are various ways of understanding Occupy. And ultimately, it's what narrative we choose. We can understand it as a debtors movement, as a democracy movement. And I choose to see it as a workers movement because what it was, it was people who were unemployed. The real unemployment rate across the country was about 16%. The one in six Americans who should have been in the workforce were unemployed, had been forced out of the workforce, couldn't enter the workforce because you know, they were young. In fact, the real unemployment rate was probably higher, forced into early retirement, working part-time involuntarily. The the debt, the student debt, that was a big burden in terms of workers. If you do get a job, suddenly a quarter, a third of your income is being taken by debt. People working were losing their health care or people who were retired were seeing their pensions, again, related to work. Their pensions cut, their health care cut, people who were working futures were foreclosed and that brought them into where it was in Tahrir Square and elsewhere. People, young students who had been doing everything right and yet had no future plus debt. Right. I've interviewed factory workers all over the Midwest, auto workers, steel workers, other industrial workers. And especially what I saw with a, a lot of men, like a lot of them had lost their jobs during the economic crisis. Then they lost their homes, then they lost their marriages. And at one point, every single guy I talked to had been in bankruptcy. I don't know why the women seemed to be, I guess, better managers of money and the family, but there wasn't that type of issues with them. But it was really phenomenal just how the economic damage and, of course, the capital will use human beings as its externalities in a crisis the way that it is now used human beings as an externality in this climate catastrophism that we are seeing just starting to spin out of control. So yeah, debt was very central, but I think the way I choose to see it is debt structured around the workplace, right? And you know, when you're talking about the millions of foreclosures, millions of fraudulent foreclosures, well, who are these people being foreclosed upon. It's disproportionately black workers, Latino workers, native workers. It's the working class who are really getting shafted time and again, and a lot of white workers as well. Right. We have to get sort of to the present and the legacy. And one of the things that you talked about, you know, and I remember at the time everybody said, well, Occupy didn't have a platform. It didn't have, you know, a program and it was too horizontal and you need leadership. And then it just petered out. And I think I like to contradict that one part. It didn't peter out. It was repressed in a very concentrated way from Homeland Security and the Obama administration. But 
you also raise in your article, Arun, this issue of leaderlessness, participatory democracy, and how we need to have organization. And I wondered if there's a way that you could tie that part of the conversation and bring it up to where we are now. Hard, but can you do it? (laughs) Yeah. So I have this basic principle I've developed over years of reporting that is extend both the people and social movements is that one's strength is their weakness at one and the same time. And so with Occupy, it was the openness. Now, there are a number of things that went into it that made it such a wild success. And even the policing stuff is a little tricky, right? Definitely, there was a lot of police violence, a lot of police repression that we've just seen escalate more and more over the last decade. But, you know, when you mentioned that Occupy Los Angeles began October 1st, a big part of the reason Occupy spread across the country, in fact, probably an overwhelming part of the reason, was it was police violence that was backfiring on the state. So at the one week anniversary of Occupy Wall Street, and people can look up the video, New York police pepper sprayed these women near Union Square. There was this one lieutenant, I think he got the nickname Tony Baloney. It was Anthony Bologna. He was the one who like these women were on the sidewalk doing nothing behind police nets and he pepper sprays them in the face and they're screaming. On October 1st, was the mass kettling of 700 protesters on the Brooklyn Bridge and their arrest. And we saw incident after incident. UC Davis, do you remember that one where the campus cops? That that was one of the first, I think, early memes that we saw where he's pepper spraying the young students. At Berkeley, there was the video of the students being brutalized. In Oakland, the vet was Scott Olson. He was shot in the head and nearly killed, this Iraq war vet. And so these incidents of violence, there was the Dorothy Rainey, the 84-year-old protester who was pepper sprayed. And, you know, these dramatic images galvanized huge support. And what it did is it put police on the defensive because they realized that violence was actually backfiring. And that created the social space for Occupy to just go from New York and just blow up around the country and around the world. At one point, there was something like over 300 physical occupations simultaneously occurring. And I think someone mentioned to me the total was like 1,200 around the world. And that doesn't include the thousands and thousands of chapters, places that people formed groups where they didn't have physical occupations. But the strength of people, I would see this in Zuccotti Park, that there were various things. You had the mic check, someone would speak and people would say mic check and you repeat it. And it creates this very tangible sensory form of democratic participation because you're repeating the words, you're hearing everyone, it has this resonance, you feel you are part of this whole, you are actually part of this organism called the 99%. Anyone could come into the General Assembly and people would come in and say like, well, I lost my job. I lost my house. I lost my health care. I can't get a job because I have this huge amount of student debt. My pension's been cut. And everyone could say it's because of Wall Street. And there's actually an, an academic term from this scholar, Ernesto Laclau, called chains of equivalence, where it's like everyone can see their issue as equivalent to everyone else. And they could all identify an enemy who was right there just a couple of blocks away, Wall Street. And so that is what created the actual 
people. And people say like, oh, Occupy was just a tactic. No, it wasn't. Occupy was also a strategy. It brought the people into being. And by people, I mean the beloved community, right, that you need in any sort of social struggle. Even the fascists do this. It's This is central to fascism, right? The heron folk, the master race, that we are the beloved community and everyone else is the untermensch, the underpeople, the subhumans. So that is something that was really central to Occupy. And the act of running an occupation also created an equivalence, right? Because people could come in, they could just have carpentry skills, electrician skills, they knew how to run a kitchen, they knew how to survive outdoors, it gave the people who had been pushed to the margins, it gave them a sense of self-worth and dignity and participation. And, and yes, I would say it also led to big organizing later on. Yeah. And so there were a lot of positive aspects. And sure, occupations across the country were often started to devolve into social service sites to help people in, in terms of food, shelter, counseling. But Occupy was just ripping a scab off society. The politicians and the ruling class wanted to bag a figure at Occupy and say, you're at fault. And just like, this existed. We're just showing it. And in fact, the conditions are getting better. There was like, apparently, if I recall correctly, studies showing that crime rates dropped around occupations across the country, that the crime rates were actually going down, that it was helping society. So any sort of these pathologies and trauma, Occupy was just lifting the carpet so the world could see. It wasn't causing them. And in fact, it was helping them get better. We're just about out of time, unbelievably, Arun, but I really wanted to get a last sort of appreciation of where we are today in the pressing issues and how you see them relating to the legacy of Occupy. So out of this leaderless movement, Occupy, I think, has unfortunately, it's not unfortunately, it just is what it is, that it's reached its limits. The strength of Occupy was that you could quickly coalesce and bring people together. People could walk in the General Assembly and tell their story. People could walk in the General Assembly and block and create chaos. And they weren't necessarily police agents, right? People just have egos. They, they have contrarian personalities. And it showed we need to have defined organization. You need strategy. You need leadership. You need accountability. And this is, I think, where the movements are grappling with now. You know, Standing Rock, they actually told people to go away. And if you don't go away, we're going to call the feds. You know, they didn't have the native community didn't have any qualm about that whatsoever in 2017. They're like, OK, it's over. We did what we wanted to do. Please leave. Thank you for coming. And then they were finally, if you don't leave, we're going to have the feds remove you. So. The thing is, you need to have people who are farsighted and accountable and who some people are just much better organizers, much more charismatic, much more strategic. And there's nothing wrong with leadership, you know. And so I think there are bright spots that we're starting to see in Black Lives Matter, in the native-led climate justice struggle within the Democratic Socialist America, within a lot of these low-wage worker campaigns where you are seeing radicalization combined with organization strategy and leadership. And this is particularly important because the police are getting more violent and the police are now using these fascist gangs like the Proud Boys, like Patriot Prayer, like the Three Percenters as tools to repress the left. 
And the only way you're going to overcome this violence is through mass-based, disciplined organizing. And I'm not a pacifist by any stretch of the imagination, but it's only going to come mainly through nonviolent struggle at the moment. I think there's a role at times for focused self-defense, but you need to overwhelm them with numbers. And we have the people on our side, and we need to create movements that can bring people out to oppose the violence. There's one last thing that I want to bring in. And Arun Gupta, we last talked about the horrendous policy during the Trump period on immigration of family separation and the need to storm the borders with as many progressive activists to halt this fascistic immigration policy. And here we are today with these horrendous sights of seeing Haitians trying to cross the river with ice on horseback with whips or reins, doesn't matter whatever they are. That this is a key issue that I wonder what your thoughts are about it and tying it to whether there's a legacy of movements that could still do something about the immigration policy that this government seems to be pursuing. Well, I'm so glad you said that because this is an incredibly important moment, you know, and your eyes did not deceive you. Don't let the corporate media, don't let liberal politicians. You saw white men on horseback whipping black people fleeing for their lives. And this is the historical echo at 150 decibels of chattel slavery, which this country was founded on. One of the great founding crimes along with native genocide. And we all saw that. You know, let's not argue about rains or what exactly they were doing. This was just as brutal and horrific as the treatment of black people has always been in this country. And yeah, there's growing protests against this because the Biden administration is relying on this policy known as Title 42, which they keep trying to say like, oh, it's a CDD and it's about the pandemic. And it's no, this is straight up Nazism. It equates entire nationalities with a disease. You do not get any more fascistic than saying Haitians or Guatemalans or Salvadorans equals COVID. You know, that is the essence of fascism to like reduce human beings to some sort of disease or infestation in the body politic. And so this is a moment where we really need to get out into the streets and with mass nonviolent protests and civil disobedience. And when I say nonviolence, I like I don't care about property destruction. That's not violence. But the thing is, if the Democrats will be the handmaidens of fascism, not as maybe as enthusiastically as the right, but fascism will be a bipartisan project. And the great danger of the 21st century is climate change fascism, that the climate catastrophism is going to feed into white nationalism, militarized borders, these techno surveillance states, excluding people because of the just horrific effects of storms and increasing heat and sea level rise and melting glaciers and to whip up this white nationalist just genocidal fury and so we need to be out there just opposing this and saying let them in they are allowed to come in it is their right what the biden administration is doing is illegal denying them their legal right to asylum these are our brothers and sisters we have created the horror show that is Haiti in all sorts of ways. The Clintons have been responsible for just devastating Haiti time and time again with their policies. We owe it to them, 
to allow them in. And on top of that, we can absorb millions of people because we need millions of workers. Exactly. We're going to have to leave it there, Arun Gupta, but I'm glad that you brought it, you know, around to the present and to talk about the pressing issues. And I want to thank you for joining us today. We have been discussing Occupy and the legacy of it and, and what it means for us right now. Arun Gupta founded The Independent. He did the Occupy Wall Street Journal. He followed it throughout the country, and he's got a great article in, in these times called Occupy Wall Street, Trained a Generation in Class War. Arun Gupta, thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you.